Si vis pacem, parabellum. If you want peace, prepare for war. So enjoins the Latin adage, out of which the theory of deterrence was born. But how, exactly, is one to go about preparing for war? Sure, we are all in agreement that peace is a desirable and a proper thing, if not the ultimate end toward which all human behavior should be directed. We know, from the time of our childhood and without being taught, that to coexist with our neighbors, to live side by side in harmonious relations with those from whom we differ, to whom we are not by nature favorably inclined, is quite near to the essence of being human. And yet, to ascend to this summit of mankind's perfection, to drink from the high fount of equanimity and peace, we're told we must prepare for war. What a strange precondition for the attainment of peace. What an unexpected deviation from the gentle curves of Amity's path. How, then, peace-seeking children that we are, should we go about readying ourselves for such a horrible trek? How are we to equip ourselves for the gruesomeness of battle, for the raids, bombardments, and assaults, when the only thing for which we yearn is peace? This difficult question, on which the well-being of our species hinges, remains unaddressed by the ancient maxim with which this little essay of mine begins. It's eloquent Latin, written by some nameless yet no doubt wise fellow who lived many centuries ago, is silent on the matter. To whom, then, should we turn, before which acclaimed master should we sit, in our pursuit of such dangerous yet vital wisdom, in our thirst to acquire such terrifying yet necessary instruction on how to go about preserving our peace? Of truly great military strategists and historians, there isn't a large number. Indeed, in counting them, one hardly exceeds the digits of a single hand. There is, of course, Shun Tzu, the 6th century Chinese legend. About the historicity of this oriental sage, this eastern philosopher and army general, there remains serious doubt. If he existed, and there are many reasons to believe that he did not, Shun Tzu's said to have lived in the Eastern Zhao period, just prior to the era of the Warring States. Had the man and the age coincided, nothing would be more fitting, for his name has become all but synonymous with war. For the rest of the great writers on military tactics and history, strategy and maneuvers, we turn to the West. There, springing forth from the rocky soil of Greece, we meet Herodotus, Thucydides, and Xenophon. The first, Herodotus, 
focused his attention on his country's multiple wars against Persia. Twice, within the fraught span of a single decade, the Persians loaded their vessels and conscripted their men in an attempt to subjugate Greece. And twice, to the shock of an empire convinced of its insuperable force and its providential right, they were repulsed. Enraged by the Athenians' involvement in the revolts of Ionia, in which, with their timely shipments of arms, hoplites, and cash, those lovers of democracy in the theater had played a significant role, Persia decided to punish Pallas's namesake city. First Darius, and then Xerxes, sent a flotilla to subdue the country. Of the astonishing results of their ill-fated campaigns, no educated schoolboy or girl is ignorant. Nevertheless, in brief, I'll repeat them here. Darius, for his efforts, was defeated at Marathon, while Xerxes proved unequal to the genius of Themistocles at the island of Salamis. Thus concluded Persia's twin campaigns in Greece. The country, if only for a little while, now enjoyed a respite from foreign invasions and domestic tumult. After Herodotus, we encounter Thucydides, whose preeminence among military historians is and will forever be uncontested. He wrote rather of the Peloponnesian than the Persian War, the great internal conflict in which all of Greece and just about every corner of the Mediterranean world was embroiled. The animating cause of this war, the Cassus Belli by which this 27-year engagement was inflamed, remains something of a puzzle. It's a question over which even the most dispassionate of scholars continue heatedly to debate, and for this reason, I'm careful to withhold my finger from that dangerous flame. If I did dare to add my two cents, I'd say that a little squabble in far-off Corsaira seems to have lit the match. Corinth declared the northern island a colony, but Corsaira, tired of being the possession of another, sought its liberation. In the process, it found a willing ally in democratic Athens, whose renowned navy was the only in the ancient world to which their own impressive fleet was inferior. Corinth, a prosperous city nestled on the isthmus between Attica and the Peloponnese, was irate at Athens, and found succor from its southern neighbor, Sparta. It perceived Athens's involvement as a sign of aggression, and, before long, war was underway. By birth an Athenian, by predilection a Spartan, Xenophon continued where Thucydides left off. His famous work, the Anabasis, tells the story of his campaign in Persia at about 401 BC. In command of a Greek mercenary legion, Xenophon was recruited and hired by the pouting Iranian prince Cyrus the Younger. Unfortunately, 
young Cyrus was overlooked in the royal line of succession, and his older brother, Artaxerxes II, acceded to the throne. Cyrus, miffed by his brother's regal boon, and embarrassed by the thought of living out his days as a measly satrap, attempted to usurp that to which he had no legal right. In the middle of a battle, into which he thrust himself full force, he was killed. Xenophon was there to capture the story, and to lead the remnants of his forces to the sea. Rome, successor to Greece, produced a few of her own notable military strategists and writers. First, Appian of Alexandria, and then Julius Caesar. Appian wrote Roman history, the civil wars, and the foreign wars, the last focusing on the Latin Empire's conflict with Carthage. He wrote as both strategist and historian, describing the various movements of Hannibal, Hasdrubal, Fabius Maximus, and Scipio. Julius Caesar, one of the most formidable and successful military commanders of all time, passed his hours of leisure as an author. Inspired by his grueling campaigns north of the Alps, he set out to write The Conquest of Gaul by which the genius of his tactics could be preserved, and the bravery of his conduct remembered. That said, none of these men, despite their historical importance and timeless renown, contributed more to our understanding of war than did Karl von Clausewitz. In our quest to understand how one should go about preparing for and carrying out a war, especially in a modern setting, we turn to him more than we do any other. From China to Greece to Rome, we look now to Germany, that rugged and pugnacious land of Teutons and Goths, from which this brilliant strategist Born in 1780, Clausewitz first tasted war at the age of 13. Like his father, who attained to the rank of lieutenant, Clausewitz served with distinction in the Prussian army for much of his life. When, as a young lance corporal, he first stepped out onto the battlefield, he gazed at an enemy with whom he'd spend the next two decades fighting. The detested French. First the revolutionary, then the imperial army of that Gallic nation took on the combined forces of the European continent and very nearly defeated them. Had it not been for the dallying of Grouchet, the endurance of Wellington, and Napoleon's bad luck. We might all be speaking French and adorning our lapels with a vibrant cockade. Clausewitz realized that 
military tactics were undergoing an immense and thoroughgoing change. Every settled opinion about the battlefield called for a fresh assessment. His esteemed Prussian units, famed for their professionalism, their bravery, and their insistence on drilling, failed to sweep away the more unconventional armies of the revolutionary France and the much more competently commanded Napoleonic forces. The latter had inaugurated a new type of war, a devastating approach to his employment of arms, for which his Prussian comrades simply weren't ready. It was a sobering experience for him and his nation, and it forced him to reconsider that which he had accepted as dogma. Chief among his insights, to whose subtlety and brilliance we continue to be indebted, is that war is, by its very nature, a political phenomenon. Clausewitz arrived at this conclusion after much deliberation, and after having suffered no small number of defeats. It was because of his early exposure to war that he was able to detect with more acuity than his predecessors this simple truth. Unlike them, he realized that, quote, war is merely the continuation of politics by other means, unquote, and, as such, it must be re-examined in this light. Here, we examine a few excerpts from his magnum opus on war. Chapter 3 on Military Genius Any complex activity, if it is to be carried on with any degree of virtuosity, calls for appropriate gifts of intellect and temperament. If they are outstanding and reveal themselves in exceptional achievements, their possessor is called a genius. We are aware that this word is used in many senses, differing both in degree and in kind. We also know that some of these meanings make it difficult to establish the essence of genius. But since we claim no special expertise in philosophy or grammar, we may be allowed to use the word in its ordinary meaning, in which genius refers to a very highly developed mental aptitude for a particular occupation. Let us discuss this faculty, this distinction of mind for a moment, setting out its claims in greater detail, so as to gain a better understanding of the concept. But we cannot restrict our discussion to genius proper, as a superlative degree of talent, for this concept lacks measurable limits. 
what we must do is to survey all those gifts of mind and temperament that in combination bear on military activity. These, taken together, constitute the essence of military genius. We have said in combination, since it is precisely the essence of military genius that it does not consist in a single appropriate gift, courage, for example. While other qualities of mind or temperament are wanting or are not suited to war, Genius consists in a harmonious combination of elements, in which one or the other ability may predominate, but none may be in conflict with the rest. If every soldier needed some degree of military genius, our armies would be very weak, for the term refers to a special caste of mental or moral powers, which can rarely occur in an army when a society has to employ its abilities in many different areas. The smaller the range of activities of a nation, and the more the military factor dominates, the greater will be the incidence of military genius. This, however, is true only of its distribution, not of its quality. The latter depends on the general intellectual development of a given society. In any primitive, warlike race, the warrior spirit is far more common than among civilized peoples. It is possessed by almost every warrior. But in civilized societies, only necessity will stimulate it in people as a whole, since they lack the natural disposition for it. On the other hand, we will never find a savage who is truly a great commander, and very rarely one would be considered a military genius, since this requires a degree of intellectual powers beyond anything that a primitive people can develop. Civilized societies, too, can obviously possess a warlike character to greater or lesser degree, and the more they develop it, the greater will be the number of men with military spirit in their armies. Possession of military genius coincides with the higher degrees of civilization. The most highly developed societies produce the most brilliant soldiers, as the Romans and the French have shown us. With them, as with every people renowned in war, the greatest names do not appear before a high level of civilization has been reached. We can already guess how great a role intellectual powers play in the higher forms of military genius. Let us now examine the matter more closely. War is the realm of danger. Therefore, courage is the soldier's first requirement. 
Courage is of two kinds. Courage in the face of personal danger and courage to accept responsibility, either before the tribunal of some outside power or before the court of one's own conscience. The first kind will be discussed here. Courage in face of personal danger is also of two kinds. It may be indifferent to danger, which could be due to the individual's constitution or to his holding life cheap or to have it. In any case, it must be regarded as a permanent condition. Alternatively, courage may result from such positive motives as ambition, patriotism, or enthusiasm of any kind. In that case, courage is a feeling, an emotion, not a permanent state. These two kinds of courage act in different ways. The first is the more dependable. Having become second nature, it will never fail. The other will often achieve more. There is more reliability in the first kind, more boldness in the second. The first leaves the mind calmer. The second tends to stimulate, but it can also blind. The highest kind of courage is a compound of both. War is the realm of physical exertion and suffering. These will destroy us unless we can make ourselves indifferent to them, and for this birth or training must provide us with a certain strength of body and soul. If we do possess those qualities, then even if we have nothing but common sense to guide them, we shall be well equipped for war. It is exactly these qualities that primitive and semi-civilized peoples usually possess. If we pursue the demands that war makes on those who practice it, we come to the region dominated by the powers of intellect. War is the realm of uncertainty. Three-quarters of the factors on which action in war is based are wrapped in a fog of greater or lesser uncertainty. A sensitive and discriminating judgment is called for. A skilled intelligence to scent out the truth. Average intelligence may recognize the truth occasionally, and exceptional courage may now and then retrieve a blunder. But usually intellectual inadequacy will be shown up by indifferent achievement. War is the realm of chance. No other human activity gives it greater scope. No other has such incessant and varied dealings with this intruder. Chance makes everything more uncertain and interferes with the whole course of events. 
of all the passions that inspire man in battle, none, we have to admit, is so powerful and so constant as the longing for honor and renown. The German language unjustly tarnishes this by associating it with two ignoble meanings in the terms greed for honor and hankering after glory. The abuse of these noble ambitions has certainly inflicted the most disgusting outrages on the human race. Nevertheless, their origins entitle them to be ranked among the most elevated in human nature. In war, they act as the essential breath of life that animates the inert mass. Other emotions may be more common and more venerated. Patriotism, idealism, vengeance, enthusiasm of every kind. But they are no substitute for a thirst for fame and honor. They may, indeed, rouse the mass to action and inspire it, but they cannot give the commander the ambition to strive higher than the rest, as he must if he is to distinguish himself. They cannot give him, as can ambition, a personal, almost proprietary interest in every aspect of fighting, so that he turns each opportunity to best advantage, plowing with vigor, sowing with care, in the hope of reaping with abundance. It is primarily this spirit of endeavor on the part of commanders at all levels, this inventiveness, energy, and competitive enthusiasm which vitalizes an army and makes it victorious. And so far as the commander-in-chief is concerned, we may well ask whether history has ever known a great general who was not ambitious, whether, indeed, such a figure is conceivable. War is an act of human intercourse. War does not belong in the realm of arts and sciences. Rather, it is a part of man's social existence. War is a clash between major interests, which is resolved by bloodshed. That is the only way in which it differs from other conflicts. Rather than comparing it to art, we could more accurately compare it to commerce, which is also a conflict of human interests and activities. And it is still closer to politics, which in turn may be considered as a kind of commerce on a larger scale. Politics, moreover, is the womb in which war develops, where its outlines already exist in their hidden, rudimentary form, like the characteristics of living creatures in their embryos. Part of the object of this book is to examine whether a conflict of living forces as it develops and is resolved in war remains subject to general laws, and whether these can provide a useful guide to action. This much is clear. This subject, 
like any other that does not surpass man's intellectual capacity, can be elucidated by an inquiring mind, and its internal structure can to some degree be revealed. That alone is enough to turn the concept of theory into reality. War, in its highest form, is not an infinite mass of minor events, analogous despite their diversities, which can be controlled with greater or lesser effectiveness, depending on the methods applied. War consists, rather, of single, great, decisive actions, each of which needs to be handled individually. War is not like a field of wheat, which, without regard to the individual stock, may be mown more or less efficiently depending on the quality of the scythe. It is like a stand of mature trees in which the axe has to be used judiciously according to the characteristics and development of each individual trunk. And what do we mean by destruction of the enemy's forces? A reduction of strength relatively larger than our own. Equal absolute losses will, of course, mean smaller relative losses to the side with numerical superiority, and can therefore be considered an advantage. But having stripped the engagement of all other objects, we must also exclude that of using it to effect indirectly a greater destruction of the enemy forces. Consequently, only the direct profit gained in the process of mutual destruction may be considered as having been the object. This profit is absolute. It remains fixed throughout the entire balance sheet of the campaign, and in the end will always prove pure gain. If by skillful deployment one can place the enemy at such a disadvantage that he cannot continue fighting without risk, and if after some resistance he retreats, we can say that at this point we have beaten him. But... If we have lost proportionately as many men in the process as he did, no trace of this so-called victory will show up in the final balance sheet of the campaign. Getting the better of an enemy, that is, placing him in a position where he has to break off the engagement, cannot in itself be considered as an objective, and for this reason cannot be included in the definition of the objective. Nothing remains, therefore, but the direct profit gained in the process of destruction. This gain includes not merely the casualties inflicted during the action, but also those which occur as a direct result of his retreat. Every engagement is a bloody and destructive test of physical and moral strength. Whoever has the greater sum of both left at the end 
is the victor. What is the concept of defense? The parrying of a blow. What is its characteristic feature? Awaiting the blow. It is this feature that turns any action into a defensive one. It is the only test by which defense can be distinguished from attack in war. Pure defense, however, would be completely contrary to the idea of war, since it would mean that only one side was waging it. Therefore, defense in war can only be relative, and the characteristic feature of waiting should be applied only to the basic concept, not to all of its components. A partial engagement is defensive if we await the advance, the charge of the enemy. A battle is defensive if we await the attack, await, that is, the appearance of the enemy in front of our lines and within range. A campaign is defensive if we wait for our theater of operations to be invaded. In each of these cases, the characteristic of waiting and parrying is germane to the general idea without being in conflict with the concept of war. For we may find it advantageous to await the charge against our bayonets and the attack on our position in theater of operations. But if we are really waging war, we must return the enemy's blows. And these offensive acts in our defensive war come under the heading of defense. In other words, our defensive takes place within our own positions or theater of operations. Thus, a defensive campaign can be fought with offensive battles. And in a defensive battle, we can employ our divisions offensively. Even in a defensive position, awaiting the enemy assault, our bullets take the offensive. So the defensive form of war is not a simple shield, but a shield made up of well-directed blows. In war, the subjugation of the enemy is the end, and the destruction of his fighting forces, the means. That applies to attack and defense alike. By means of the destruction of the enemy's forces, defense leads to attack, which in turn leads to the conquest of the country. That then, is the objective. But it need not be the whole country. It may be limited to a part, a province, a strip of territory, a fortress, and so forth. Any one of these may be of political value in negotiations, whether they are retained or exchanged. It is, of course, well known that the only source of war is politics.
the intercourse of governments and peoples. But it is apt to be assumed that war suspends that intercourse and replaces it by a wholly different condition, ruled by no law but its own. We maintain, on the contrary, that war is simply a continuation of political intercourse with the addition of other means. We deliberately use the phrase, with the addition of other means, because we also want to make it clear that war in itself does not suspend political intercourse or change it into something entirely different. In essentials, that intercourse continues, irrespective of the means it employs. The main lines along which military events progress, and to which they are restricted, are political lines that continue throughout the war into the subsequent peace. How could it be otherwise? Do political relations between peoples and between their governments stop when diplomatic notes are no longer exchanged? Is war not just another expression of their thoughts, another form of speech or writing, Its grammar, indeed, may be its own, but not its logic. If that is so, then war cannot be divorced from political life. If war is part of policy, policy will determine its character. As policy becomes more ambitious and vigorous, so will war, and this may reach the point where war attains its absolute form. If we look at war in this light, we do not need to lose sight of this absolute. On the contrary, we must constantly bear it in mind. Policy, of course, is nothing in itself. It is simply the trustee for all these interests against other states. That it can err, subserve the ambitions, private interests, and vanity of those in power, is neither here nor there. In no sense can the art of war ever be regarded as the preceptor of policy, and here we can only treat policy as representative of all interests of the community. The only question, therefore, is whether, when war is being planned, the political point of view should give way to the purely military. That is, should it disappear completely or subordinate itself? Or should the political point of view remain dominant and the military be subordinated to it? That the political view should wholly cease to count on the outbreak of war is hardly conceivable, unless pure hatred made all wars a struggle for life and death. In fact, as we have said, they are nothing but expressions of policy itself. 
subordinating the political point of view to the military would be absurd, for it is policy that has created war. Policy is the guiding intelligence, and war only the instrument, not vice versa. No other possibility exists, then, than to subordinate the military point of view to the political. In short, at the highest level, the art of war turns into policy. But a policy conducted by fighting battles, rather than by sending diplomatic notes. And there you have a plethora of excerpts from Clausewitz's great work on war. I urge you to give it some time and read the book for your own pleasure. And with that, my cherished friends, I bid you farewell. <laughs>